Well, this morning, the parable we're going to be in is found in Luke 18, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Here at Forefront, we usually use the ESV, so if you have a different translation, it'll be fine. Um, And I wanted to share a story with you as I got started. A couple of months ago, I went into Midas, the car repair shop, to get the oil changed on my car. And when I walked in there, um, there was a transaction happening at the counter. There was an older woman behind the counter, younger girl in front, trying to pay. And there was a breakdown in communication between what the price was and what the girl shot thought that, that she could pay, should pay. And so there was this thing on the counter that was covered in plastic, uh, and there was a price for good, better, and best. Have you seen these in, in these shops? They always give you prices. Um, and she was going for the better. The price on the better was, was $39.99, or just $40, if we can just say that. So $40, and there was also a $20 coupon being applied, and yet the price that she's being asked to pay was $45. So there was a disconnect somewhere. What she thought she should be paying, what, she, what her expectations were, were not the reality that she, was, that she was being called to do. So I was off in the corner practicing the spiritual discipline of patience in that moment, because <laughs> all I had to do was drop off the keys and say, see you in an hour. But uh, I was in that moment. And, and so they tried to figure this out, and they never really got it solved. The, the girl... Um, just said, okay, whatever, I'll, I'll pay, and she left, and she came back in and, and snapped a picture uh, of, of the thing. I'm pretty sure she probably sent an email to a manager. But what, what I had deduced was that the price on the counter was just wrong. It was outdated. And so the thing that, that she looked at, that she was reading, wasn't matching up with what was true in reality. And we are going to experience something like that as we look at this parable today, I think. Each of us at some level, might be really deep, and might be a little bit more shallow, but each of us can probably identify somehow that what we're going to read in this parable is not going to match up with our reality in some way. And so it's the parable of the, uh, of the persistent widow or the unjust judge. It can go by both names in Luke chapter 18. And what happens when we read something in the Bible that doesn't match up with our reality? Which one's going to budge? Or should one of them budge. So oftentimes when we read something in the Bible that doesn't match up with our reality, we might, we might ignore reality and we just go to the Bible and, and find some cute, pithy saying that makes us feel good for the day and, and, and leave it there and just kind of, well, that's what the Bible says, so what, I don't really care what happens in my life. Well, it's not really good because the Bible is supposed to speak into our lives. But on the other hand, you can't just ignore the Bible because of, well, that can't be true because that's not what I'm experiencing. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at both of our experience and the Bible, and we're going to to dig deep into both of them and hopefully find a way to merge them. And we're going to talk about the rapture, which if I don't have your attention now, uh, yeah, get excited. It just got interesting. So uh, we are looking at Luke 18, and this is a parable that's really cool because Luke actually tells us the reason why he... Uh, recorded this parable of Jesus. We find that in verse 1. So here we go. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Amen. Good sermon, pastor. Thank you. Okay, no. We'll keep going. So, so there it is. Always pray, never lose heart. Verse 2. He said, that is Jesus. Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps 
bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So we've got this judge. He doesn't care what God thinks of his rulings, doesn't care what other people think. He just does what he wants to. And yet, because of the persistence of this widow, he, he grants her justice. Like, just leave me alone. And the Lord Jesus said, this is verse 6, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And the first part of verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So, once again, always pray, don't lose heart, and you will be granted justice. So this, this parable seems to say. Here's a couple of Bible, uh, study Bible notes. You might even have these if you have a study Bible with you. Uh, I've got three of them. Here's one. God will not only grant justice to his children who are praying consistently, but will act swiftly in doing so. Second one. If an evil judge would yield to a poor widow's requests, how much more will God respond to those who continually cry out to him? And the third one, if the repeated petitions of a helpless widow are granted by a dishonest judge, Jesus' followers can expect that their righteous God in heaven will respond to their cries for justice. So how do you feel about this? You feel okay? Like just wrapped up nice, tidy in a bow, I can go home and feel good about myself for the day. It feels like a devotional to me, if I'm being honest. And I'm not trying to undermine study Bible notes or anything like that, because they're actually very valuable a lot of the time. But how many of you have a situation in which you feel like you're constantly crying out to God, but you are not being granted justice? It might be a relationship with a family member, a coworker, a boss, or employee, whatever, that, that you, you feel like you're doing the right thing. You're asking God even for guidance in this situation, but nothing's getting fixed. It might be that your body is broken and you're going through a time where it's just hard. You ache and, and all these sorts of things and you are praying for God for healing, but it's not happening. So what is it for you that I, I don't think that this lines up with how we experience life? Always pray and you will be granted justice. So that's my first question that we're going to talk about. Now, if you're getting antsy because I didn't read the rest of verse 8, let's look at it. But this is just another wrench that's being thrown in. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Do you have questions about this? What in the world is the Son of Man reference doing here in, in, at the end of this parable, and what in the world does that mean? Well, so we're going to get to these two things in, in time, and we're going to dig deep into what is the biblical idea of justice. We're going to take a pretty big survey, actually, throughout from Genesis to Revelation today. It's going to be fun. And also, we're going to look at what is this thing about the Son of Man? Like, why is this here? What does that mean? Are you ready? So let's go ahead and talk about justice. The biblical idea of justice starts all the way back in Genesis 1. It's my favorite place to start, a very good place to begin. And in verse 26 and 27, God creates mankind, humankind, on day 6. And it's the capstone of creation, it's, it's the, the, the crown jewel humanity is, and it is very good. And the image of God essentially means that when God forms humans, um, it, he formed them in the same way that a human in the ancient Near East might carve an idol out of wood or stone, set it up in a temple, and then think that the God that they made that for communicates to them through that idol. They go down and they worship that idol in the temple and all those kinds of things. 
God creating us, humanity, in his image is very much the same. We are supposed to be God's ambassadors to the world. We represent God to everything in creation. And that's great because that means that everyone, man and woman, are on an equal playing field. We are both, we are all created in the image of God. And that means that we should not be oppressing each other. We should not push each other down and cause injustices against other people. Now, you know that we live in a world that hasn't stayed the same. And Genesis 3 tells the story of how Adam and Eve then ate the forbidden fruit and caused injustice and sin and evil to enter the world through them taking the knowledge of good and evil for themselves off of that tree. By Genesis 4, we get Cain and Abel, and we have Cain committing the ultimate injustice against his brother Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then we continue the story by Genesis 6. The earth is in some really dire, is in a really dire situation. And I preached about the flood like way back in February, so please go listen to that. Um, Because in a nutshell, the flood is God preserving his redemptive purposes by removing all of the evil that humanity had caused to come about. Saving Noah, starting over with a new Adam in a new place to give humanity another chance, allowing God to define what is good and evil. And, but we know then by the Tower of Babel, there's more injustice, there's all kinds of things where there's oppression and that there are people trying to gain glory and honor for themselves. Fast forward, we find the people of God of Israel in Egypt. They are also being extremely oppressed and having injustices committed upon them because they're enslaved in Egypt. Well, God, once again, like he did in the flood, he removes the evil and redeems the people for a new chance. Egypt is moved out of the way, and Israel is redeemed, and then called to stop being oppressors. Look, Israel, you were oppressed. You were enslaved in Egypt. Don't become that. And that's what a lot of the New Testament law is. For example, here's a passage from Deuteronomy 27, 18. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And there we have our character in our parable. Widows were some of the easiest people in the ancient Near East culture to oppress. And the reason for that is um, men and women had, had different roles that were very separate in society, and women could not own land. They, they couldn't represent themselves in court, even do a lot of things in the marketplace. They had to have a man with them to represent them in those places. And so right away in our parable, there's a widow coming to a judge, pleading for justice. The original audience Alarm bells would have been ringing because, no, there should have been someone to take care of this widow. Why is she having to represent herself in court? Because there's no husband, obviously. There's no father. There's no, uh, there's no son. There's no uncle, brother, nephew. There's no one, no man in her life to do what the culture expected and, and have someone take care of her. So right away, there's something wrong. And God is incredibly concerned about widows, about orphans and about refugees and sojourners and and foreigners. Here's another one. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now, the context here in Isaiah is that Israel has unfortunately become the oppressor, and they have started to to, um, take glory and honor for themselves at the expense of others and commit more injustices. And Isaiah is warning Israel, hey, stop. You're not doing what God wants us to do in taking care of these people, the easily oppressed. 
Proverbs 31.8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And the last one, Psalm 146.9, The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Those three characters are so important to God. But look at the last part. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. You and I need to be careful that we are not part of the wicked. And, and here's what I mean. It is, it is quite easy, especially I think in our nation and our culture, to unknowingly contribute to some of these systems of oppression that we may not even know about. And so there's two kinds of justice. There's two kinds, that, and one of them is much more prevalent in our American justice system. One of them, uh, it's called retributive justice or punitive justice. This is basically just like paying consequences for wrong action, right? You commit a crime, you, you get caught speeding, you have to pay a fine. You have to, to do community service, you have to go to jail, whatever the consequence might be. That is the majority of our American justice system. The second one, though, the second type of justice is, far, is, is what God is much more interested in, and that is restorative justice. Restorative justice is where we are supposed to go out into the land, out into our communities, and find those people who are being oppressed, redeem them from that situation the best way that we can, and then start to work behind the scenes to try and stop those systems of oppression from happening. That is what Christians, that is one call on our lives and we as a church that we are supposed to do. Um, this morning, I just met a guy, I knew him previously. He stops in here about 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. Um, his name is D'Angelo, and he is wearing an ankle bracelet. Uh, he recently got out of prison, and so he only has a small window of time where he can be between home and work, and, and Forefront is on the way, and so he started stopping by um, and just hanging out with us, and it's awesome. Like, it, it, for him to come here, he, he called it, this is my equilibrium, between, like, well, you know, one day a week to just come here and, and hang out with some of us who are doing music or just hanging out, and... He was telling me this morning about how, just, just his situation, um, about how much he has to give from his paycheck because he, he's in this system, in, in the federal system of wearing that ankle bracelet, and that it goes until June. And then, then not only that, but there's the normal taxes on top of that, and if he breaks his ankle bracelet, it's like $2,000, and he might go back to jail again. He's, he has to be so careful. And as he was talking, I just got the sense that that D'Angelo is this kind of person who is feeling that pressure of, of oppression. And now, be careful to not hear me say that, that the American justice just system is broken. I'm not here to say anything about that. I just got the feeling that that is his reality. That's what he feels. And it's a joy to be able to just be his equilibrium for, for a half hour. And so I think that's an example maybe of how we as, as a church can, can just be aware to, to go out and reach those kinds of people. So there is the biblical idea of justice, right? Much more about restorative justice. Yes, there is punitive and retributive justice, but God really cares about the fatherless, the orphans, the widows, and those types of things. All right, so that's the biblical idea of justice. Bring all of that weight to our parable towards the end. But first, we're going to make our second stop and talk about the Son of Man. And here's where it gets interesting. So the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 to 14. There's this crazy apocalyptic vision that Daniel gives an account of, and he, uh, he, he sees this son of man, someone who's like a son of man, he, he rides on the clouds up to the throne room of God, um, and, and he's not a special character, he's really just a human. He is a son 
of a man. That's where the phrase son of man comes from. And, and he is given, in that moment from God, he's given power, he's given authority, and the ability to rule a kingdom that never ends. Now, what does an ancient Near East king do? Well, they go up, they sit on their throne, and cases are brought before them, and they will make judgments. So you can see that the two are connected. The Son of Man is a judge. He, he is a judge in that apocalyptic vision because he now rules a kingdom he has to give rulings for. He is also a king because in the end of time, Jesus, who identifies himself as the Son of Man most often, that's his most common title. I, I think you, you may know that. The Son of Man was what Jesus uses to refer to himself most often. And at the end of time, Jesus will return and he will be the judge of all of us. And this is interesting because this parable, the parable of the persistent widow, is actually a second coming parable because of what happens there at the end of verse 18, but also because of the lead up to it, which we're going to look at. So, the days of the Son of Man. I'm, I'm, I hope you're sticking with me. By the way, if, if you want to do more end time stuff, uh, shameless plug for Bible study on Thursday nights. So we're going through Revelation. We're going to talk a lot more about this stuff in, in more detail. Um, and, and the days of the Son of Man is essentially when Jesus will return and he will, um, he will remove evil, just like God has done in the past, so that those of us who are still here can witness the joining of heaven and earth and we will live in the presence of God unmitigated by evil forevermore. I want that day to come so soon. But the, t- the passages that we have before here talk about these days, in the days of the Son of Man. So here's verse 26. I don't have these up on the screen, so you can read along or, or just listen. So verse 26 of chapter 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. That seems like really weighty stuff. Um, remember, though, that the flood was a judgment that God had to do in order to preserve his own redemptive purposes so that, you, so that you and I can still be here and the humanity of old would not have destroyed the earth. That's what the flood was for. So in the days of the Son of Man, people are just living life. They're eating. I love to eat. They're feasting. They're marrying. They're building. They're planting. They're just living life. And all of a sudden, the days of the Son of Man will arrive and then the end will happen. You know a lot of other scriptures that talk about, you know, Jesus' second return coming like a thief in the night. It's sudden. You don't know when it's going to happen. All of a sudden, it's here. Now, here's the part about the rapture. How many of you um, are familiar with the Left Behind series? I see several hands going up. I think a lot of us who especially grew up in the church in the 90s and early aughts, or the thousands, whatever you want to call them, uh, know about that. There were books. Was there a movie, too? Think, yeah, there was a movie. I, I remember it. Like, and left behind, the idea is that when Jesus returns, he's going to take all of the faithful people up to heaven with him. And then, so if, if you're a pilot and you're a Christian and you're taken, well, then your plane falls out of the sky. That's what the movie's about. Like, that's. I apologize, but we've twisted it. I think we've missed what that really is a little bit. Let's look at the scripture, because here is what is more true about that time. So, verse 34. Of chapter 17. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, that is grinding wheat at a mill. One will be taken and the other left. Now, our hunch, because of 
the Left Behind series is that we want to be taken to heaven. But think about the days of Noah, just right before this. In the days of Noah, people were taken away in judgment. People were left to continue God's good work. It's actually the other way around. We want to be left behind. Because if we are left behind, that means that we are still around to witness evil being pushed out by Jesus once and for all, and to witness the new heaven and the new earth coming together to be merged. That is what we want. You and I, I pray that we are there among that day, that we are resurrected, because we want to witness that moment in the days of the Son of Man. When God, when Jesus is the judge. Are any of you Braveheart fans? Yeah, okay, a whoop, right? Uh, so in Braveheart, I actually haven't, I, don't, I think I saw it a long time ago. I apologize for those of you who are diehard fans. Uh, I haven't. It's like one of those movies that, that adds to your man card, I think. It's like, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, in Braveheart, it's, it's, uh, it's about the Scottish Rebellion. And William Wallace is a, is a character played by Mel Gibson. And so Towards the end of the movie, you get this battle scene, right? We've probably seen a movie like this, where there's one army over here on this hillside, another army over here, and one of them is the professional army. It's like the bad guys. Uh, Mel Gibson also plays uh, the character in The Patriot, right? It's the same kind of deal. And over here is the good guys. We've got William Wallace and, and the Scottish people rebelling. But when, when, the, when the good guys see the bad guys' army, they're like, wait a second. What are we doing? Did we do the right thing? I don't want to die. Let's go home. And so you have to give an inspirational speech. That's how movies work. You have to give an inspirational speech to motivate your army to, to go and do it. And so Mel Gibson is riding on his horse. He is talking in his amazing Scottish accent, and, and he gives the, the inspirational speech, and everyone's chanting and shouting, yelling manly stuff going on, and then he turns around, and the battle's supposed to commence. There's a scene in Revelation, chapter 19 and 20, that I imagine this, this scene, you got, you got armies, right? So you got Jesus on one side. This is the Jesus who's like riding on a white horse. He's got a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. His name is tattooed on his thigh. This is like scary Jesus, the one you don't want to see. Okay? And on the other side, you've got Satan, who has somehow managed to marshal an army on this side. And so I imagine Satan is Mel Gibson in this moment, who's giving the inspirational speech. Satan is not, Mel Gibson is not Satan. Don't hear me say that. The, the it's the scene, right? Okay. <laughs> so... So you've got Satan, he's giving his inspirational speech to the, the armies that he has marshaled. He turns, faces the army of Jesus and the angels, who, by the way, there are resurrected saints who, who are witnessing this battle in, in this apocalyptic vision. And you're ready for the trumpet to sound and, and the cavalry to charge. But in the next verse, Satan is gone. His army is decimated. There's no battle. In one verse, there's the inspirational speech is going on. In the next verse, the battle is gone. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, and his army is just completely disbanded and removed by Jesus. There is no battle. Because Jesus has already won the battle. He has already given us the justice that we need to continue to persevere, to continue to never give up and always pray and always walk with God. He did that on the cross and in the resurrection. And this time that we're living in now... Satan is just thrashing his tail like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. Believe me, I know about two-year-old tantrums at right, this moment in life. That is the period that we're living in. 
And if you and I, if we constantly pray and persevere and never lose heart and never give up, one day you will be granted justice. We just may not experience it in this moment at this time. And so what are we to do with this, church? Because what we find, actually, that our reality, we have to shift that into what will happen eventually and then allow that biblical idea of justice and the days of the Son of Man to come together and the parable means exactly what it says it means. To never lose heart, always pray, always walk with your God, and you will one day be granted justice. So there's two groups of people here in this room. There's probably more. There's shades. But if you allow me to simplify it, there's two groups. One group is feeling the oppression. Is someone like D'Angelo who just feel like you can't get away from, from these things that are hurting you. Maybe you're, you're having some experience that, that you, you aren't being delivered from, be it finances, relationships, um, other pain, whatever it is. My dear friends, if this is you, then we at Forefront are here for you. That is what one of the things this church and every church should be here for. We want to know about your struggles. We want to walk alongside you in that and take care of you however we can. I know it might be a little difficult to accept a little bit of charity, but we give it so joyfully because of the blessings that God has given to us. So if that describes you, and we don't know about your struggles, or we don't know about those kinds of things, please let us know. Join a life group. I know each and every life group, and there's incredible, amazing people who would love to walk with you through those times, and just be with you, and support you. Walk alongside you, and say, yeah, me too. And I bet there are other people who are going through those same kinds of struggles as well. Second group, and I would probably count myself among these, that I don't necessarily feel oppressed. Like I'm, I'm doing okay in general. Um, what God calls those of us, so those of you who like me to do, are to go out and really work on this restorative justice kind of thing. To go out, find people, Make their problem our problem. Walk alongside them and help them in any way possible, in any way that we can. And here's the thing, Forefront, I think we do actually a decent job at this. Uh, we're, we really try to be connected with community ministry, our local food and clothing bank. Um, some of us are trying to get some relationships going with our local schools. We really have a heart for this community. I think that's great. Um, but I don't want you to stop there. I don't want us to stop and say, yep, check in the box. I brought in my coats for the coat drive. But please do that. Those are necessities that are needed. But is your mentality, it's like, yep, social justice, restorative justice, check the box, I'm good. If that is your mentality, I want to challenge you to go beyond that and do a little more. Find someone actually to develop a relationship with whoever that might be. So church, this is one of those times where I'd actually like to let a song close for me. So as your creative arts pastor, um, I like our fancy titles that we give ourselves sometimes. Actually, Drew gave me that. I didn't give you that. Um, I'd like to, to just sing a song, and it's a new song. Uh, it's called Battle Belongs by Phil Wickham. And this song, I would love for us just to allow to speak through the music, through through the lyrics, and through all of those things, because there's something powerful about music, right? That's one of the reasons I used to be a, a music teacher. Um, so the song is called Battle Belongs, and uh, I'd love for us to learn it, uh, and then be able to sing it more often later, because um, it's just a good song.
And actually, Ron's been itching for me to sing this for like two years or something, right? Ever since I got here. So, um, Church, why don't you go ahead and uh, close your eyes. We'll, we'll give a little prayer here. Uh, let's sing the song together, and then uh, Pete will come up and dismiss us.